in my last lecture, I talked a lot about navigation and blood types and relations between the sexes, the material world. Today, I'm going to switch gears entirely and devote much of today's lecture to what was going on in people's minds, theology, popular theology. And it's going to require a great act of imagination on your part, since you have no reason uh, to expect that your life may be suddenly ended by an unexpected death. Uh, you can look forward to the next 50 years, 60 years, really, of pretty tranquil existence. But time travelers, which is what we historians are, have to use their imagination. And for people in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, death could take even the healthiest person in the bloom of youth. Death was the great equalizer. King and cardinal, scholar and scientist, the clergy, the maiden, all were joined in the dance of death. And the dance of death was a popular theme in paintings then, though you could say really uh, reminders of death were hardly necessary for these people. Now today, I'm going to talk about the Protestant Reformation, which broke up the unity of Christendom, uh, of Latin Christian culture, and whose effects we can see even today. Now, there's very little about the church and nothing whatever really about God in Machiavelli's The Prince. If The Prince were the only document that survived from the early 16th century, we would have an utterly false idea of the role played by Christianity in the hearts of most people, the high as well as the low. In 1493, A History of Mankind from Adam to the Present was published in Nuremberg. And this history ended the present not with the discovery of the New World the preceding year, not even with Bartholomew Diaz's voyage around the Cape of Good Hope, 1487-88, though, though probably uh, he knew about it, the author knew about it, but rather it ended with a meditation on the brevity of human existence and a woodcut of the dance of death whose final scene displays Christ on the Day of Judgment. Now, the author clearly knew about Dias's discovery, but he never mentioned it. And the reason was he didn't think of history as the record of humanities expanding across the earth. He thought of history as the sum of pilgrimages by countless individual souls through a veil of tears, this life, in hopes of arriving at a heavenly Jerusalem. And on the last day, the end of history, all the dead would stand before the judgment seat to hear the words, well done, or depart from me to everlasting fire. Now, the most famous illustration of this fear and this hope is probably the last judgment by Michelangelo, which is painted on the wall of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. It's a vast painting, but here are some of the details. Here is Christ as judge with his right hand bringing people up to heaven. Sorry, that's my left hand. And uh, the other hand pushing them down to hell. Here is the resurrection, those happy souls who are being brought up. 
Here is, uh, in fact, the skin of St. Bartholomew, who was flayed as a punishment. He was a martyr. And Michelangelo went so far as to paint his own face uh, on that skin. But more important and more moving is this picture of the damned, uh, someone who has just discovered uh, that time is up and uh, he doesn't have much chance. There's a demon who is, in fact, pulling him down. Now, of course, most Christians couldn't go to Rome. They didn't go to the Sistine Chapel. What did they know? But there were countless other paintings and even woodcuts about the final judgment, delivering exactly the same message. Here is one from Strasbourg in 1480. The saved are on the left. The damned are on the right. And note that leading the line of the damned is a pope, Tierra, a king, and a bishop. And it goes on down to the ordinary people. They're leading the line maybe because even in hell they get first shot. Uh, but it shows that everyone is going to face judgment, not just the poor. Now, it wasn't just the Spaniards and the conquistadors who were careful to say their prayers. In a world where most people died young, death might snatch you unprepared, the thoughts of many were really preoccupied with their eternal salvation. Henry VIII, the English king who would eventually marry six women and behead two of them, heard mass three times a day during hunting season, five times a day during the rest of the year. And these acts of piety were not empty gestures. Let me give you another telling example, that of the Englishman Sir Thomas More. More was like Machiavelli in many ways. He was a man of the world, a thoroughly political animal. Like Machiavelli, he was a lawyer by profession and a distinguished diplomat. And at one time, he even served as Speaker of the House of Commons. And whereas Machiavelli had been Secretary of War for Florence for a while, Sir Thomas More had so impressed Henry VIII that he made him Lord Chancellor of England, the highest office of the realm. Now, you could say that Sir Thomas More was the Karl Rove of Henry VIII's administration. He was the fixer. When things got tough, he got in there and straightened them out. Now, like Machiavelli, too, More was a humanist. He knew many languages. And his novel of life on an imaginary island, published in 1516, two years after Machiavelli had finished writing The Prince, had as its title Utopia, a Greek for nowhere. And this book, in fact, has given us our concept of utopia as an ideal place that, of course, doesn't exist. And Moore was also a warm and boisterous family man. He was the friend of many major intellectuals of his day. And like them, he was a critic of the abuses of the Renaissance church. Theologically, he was what we would call a liberal. But when push came to shove and Henry VIII decided to leave the Catholic Church in 1529, Catholic Church was then the only church in Latin Christendom, and to set up a new church on his own with himself as the head, Moore refused to obey. That is, he refused to simply say the words of compliance that Henry demanded. He could have done it with his fingers crossed, which he might well have done, who would have been the wiser? Well, God would have been the wiser. And he refused. 
even though he was quite aware of what refusal meant, his death. Thus, in 1535, only three years after Machiavelli's The Prince was finally published, the year that Michelangelo began to paint his last judgment, this worldly, ambitious man preferred to die rather than say an oath declaring that his king, in religious matters, stood higher than the pope. So Moore was beheaded. On the block, by the way, he forgave his executioner, saying that they would meet uh, someday in paradise. Then uh, Henry had his head stuck on a pole on top of London Bridge as a warning to anybody who walked over. So the martyrdom of Sir Thomas More was testimony to his belief that the king couldn't simply make a church, that there was, in fact, only one church for all its faults, faults which he freely admitted, and there could be no salvation outside it. Now, this wasn't the act of a single individual. From the second decade of the 16th century to roughly the middle decade of the 17th, that is the same time that the Spanish are establishing themselves in Mexico and Peru, many men and women would undergo a similar martyrdom at the hands of whatever state they happened to live in. Some, because they insisted, like Thomas More, that the church was one and its head was the pope in Rome, and we call these people Catholics. And some, for precisely the opposite belief, they decided that the church whose head was the pope in Rome was the work of a devil, the whore of Babylon, was the biblical phrase they used to describe the Catholic Church. And we call these people, of whom there were many varieties, Protestants. Both sides believed that to forsake their beliefs was to endanger the only thing that in the end really counted, their immortal souls, which would live on after death for all eternity in either heaven or hell. Now, both sets of martyrs were products of a period of religious turmoil that began at least as early as 1517, three years after Machiavelli wrote The Prince, and didn't begin to die down until 1648, 131 years later. And we call this period the Age of the Reformation. But you should understand that in art history, in music, in architecture, in humanist literature, this is the Age of the Renaissance. They're absolutely the same. They overlap. Now, before I go into the Reformation's origins and history, let me list briefly why you should think it's important, the changes it brought about. First, this period, both in its cultural Renaissance aspects and its religious Reformation aspects, ushered in a new individualism, which replaced in many parts of Europe a much more communal and collectivist way of thinking. The portraiture I talked about in my last lecture is an example of this. Second, with this new individualism came a much stricter personal morality, which today we associate with Puritanism, but it manifested itself among Catholics as well as Protestants. For though I'm going to be talking in class only really about the Protestant Reformation, it's important to remember that within Catholicism, a Catholic Reformation occurred almost simultaneously, and that the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin and others, had Catholic counterparts 
especially among the Spaniards, Ignatius Loyola, St. Teresa of Avila, and others. Third, but even though there were reformers in both camps, it was the Protestants who affected the lasting breakup of Latin Christendom. And so this is why I'm concentrating on them. From a single church, Europe would soon become a collection of different churches, mostly state churches. This is particularly clear in Northern Europe, in England and Scotland, in Scandinavia, in many, though not all, of the German states, in Holland. And this had hugely important political consequences. In these countries, the crown became much more wealthy than it had ever been before. Protestant rulers simply took the property of the church for themselves and put the clergy now made forcibly Protestant on a salary. And the state as a whole became much more powerful than it had been in the past. Fourth, among Protestants, there were enormous ideological changes. A rethinking of the nature of human freedom and divine will, leading some of them, the Calvinists, to accept a kind of predestination. Fifth, there was also a rethinking of the nature of authority, of religious authority, that is, who had the right to lay down the law within a given religious community, and of political authority, that is, authority within the state. And the results of this were very diverse and, I would say, ambiguous. Sixth, these changes had an enormous impact on the world. They would bring pilgrims to North America. They would take Jesuits to India and China. They would establish religious traditions that have existed more or less continuously up to the present day. Seventh, these changes affected all aspects of life because religion was rooted in all aspects of people's lives. It provided the foundation for public order. It provided a model for obedience within society. It affected the holidays. People celebrated the food they ate and when they ate it, the oaths they swore. Eight, finally, these developments inaugurated a period of enormous bloodshed and war, civil war, international war, culminating in the 30 years wars of 1618 to 1648. This was a war, or really a series of wars, that was a civil war for Germans between Catholics and Protestants, but an international war for the rest of the continent, the states that intervened. And they didn't always intervene on the sides of their own co-religionists, by the way. Now, we can see remnants of these conflicts today in the persistent struggle between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. That's one example. Of course, these wars, and they are also responses to political impulses. I don't want to imply that they're entirely religious. These wars could also be fought by some, for some of the same reasons that wars had always been fought in Europe. Uh, the people fighting them, the kings, wanted more territory, or they wanted to dispute a royal succession, or they thought they could get money out of it, or they thought they could get power or prestige. But always added to these motives, and therefore making these wars much harder to bring to a conclusion, were religious impulses, crusading impulses. Now, in the past, crusading impulses had usually been directed outside Europe, to the Middle East, or to the New World. What we're going to see this week are outbursts of passions very similar 
to all of these other crusades. Now, a crusade, as you know, is a war conceived of as defending the faith as well as spreading it. But these particular crusades, we're going to talk more about them on Thursday, were not waged against pagans or Jews or Muslims. These crusades are now taking place within Christendom itself. So to think of the big picture, you could say that Europe had been uh, created and defined by successive conversions to Christianity along the Mediterranean, particularly the northern Mediterranean, and of the barbarian tribes north of the Alps and west of the Urals between the 5th and the 12th centuries. Okay, that's the beginning. That Europe had then shrunk under the Turkish conquests of the 15th century to Latin Christendom, the West, since much of what had been Europe in the East, the lands of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, had become, in effect, colonies of the Ottoman Empire, a Eurasian power. But the 16th and 17th centuries would see within the West a succession of wars that destroyed the unity of Latin Christendom both as a cultural unit and as a focus of loyalty and identity which united Europeans in the West. From now on, Europeans are going to start considering themselves either Catholic or Protestant. And for all of their continued similarities with each other and looking back, uh, we see that they look an awful lot alike, these Catholics and Protestants. And particularly, uh, about 10 years ago, the Lutherans and the Catholics decided, ah, it was all a big mistake, issued a joint declaration, etc. But at the time, these two groups are developing into distinct cultures with distinctive forms of piety, different attitudes towards commerce and education and marriage. And in some places, particularly where the territorial unit was small, like the Dutch Netherlands or England, the identities that were forged in these new crusades worked ultimately to the benefit of the consolidation of the state because it contributed to a sense of national consciousness and cohesiveness defined against the other. But of course, this time the other isn't far away Islam, but those damnable Catholics uh, right across the border or in the case of uh, Scotland and England, right across the English Channel. But I don't want to exaggerate. Even in small units such as these, the transformation from religious to national identity took a long time. Uh, initially, you could say religious and national identity were the same, probably with the emphasis on religious. Throughout the 16th and on into the 17th century, there were Catholics in England, and they and English Protestants each felt much stronger ties to their co-religionists on, in other countries than they did to each other, to their co-religionists in Spain, the Netherlands, France, and the German states. And when something as sacred as their salvation was at stake, English Catholics felt perfectly free in the 16th century to conspire with Spain or France to invade and overthrow their own English monarch, Queen Elizabeth. But wasn't only Catholics whose religious loyalties trumped their loyalty to their monarch and drove them to commit what we would call treason. In the next century, the 17th century, English Protestants could and did conspire with the Protestant Dutch to overthrow their own English Catholic king, James II. 
and we're going to see about this uh, next week and the week after, it was successful. And in a sense, you can see similar things playing out in some countries today. In current Iraq, there are people in some of the provinces, Shias, who feel a stronger identity with Iran uh, than they do with uh, the Sunnis in their own country. Now, maybe this hadn't always been the case, but it seems to be developing. And Sunnis likewise develop loyalties across the border. In larger territories like France, the Reformation and the religious wars that followed actually interrupted the process of territorial consolidation and state building and ultimately nation making for at least a half a century and probably more. And then when we go to regions like German, the German lands where there are no clear geographic boundaries, this dark green here is all a flat plain, and this is almost flat. And there's nothing really uh, geographical to separate one state from another. Opposing religious identities, Protestant and Catholic, were so strong and so evenly divided that the consciousness of any common German nationality could scarcely compete with them. Uh, and this is, I think, perfectly understandable. It took the First World War for Catholics and Protestants in Germany to begin to feel at home with each other in a common nation. And even then, even after the First World War, these two cultures continue to respond very differ differently to similar developments. For example, take the disastrous national elections in Germany held during the Great Depression, 1930 to 33. These were the elections that brought Hitler to power. And the strongest predictor of how people would vote in these elections was not region, not class, not gender, but religion. If we look at the bottom right, down here, this is the Catholic population of Germany. Unfortunately, this doesn't reproduce quite well. Along here on the very bottom, it's a lighter pinkish red, and this is a pinkish red and so forth. And you can see along here, it's a lighter color here. So these are where the Catholics lived, and uh, this has been approved statistically with very careful work, regression analyses. And here is the degree of Nazi vote. And the darker the color, the more the Nazis. You could put these two maps exactly on top of each other, and you could see something very uh, simple. Uh, that when Hitler, the last election, that, well, not the last, actually, the penultimate election, the election that when Hitler got the most votes, uh, it's clear that the more Protestant the district was, the more fully Protestant, the more likely they were to vote Nazi, the more fully Catholic the district the uh, district was, the more likely they were to vote for the party they had always voted for, which was the Catholic Party. So quite different identities. And it's not just in times of crises that you can see these differences. Even in today's modern, extremely secularized German Germany, as late as the 1990s, the strongest predictor of voting behavior, although it was much milder now, uh, the mark of cultural identity, you could say, is still whether the voters were born Protestant or born Catholic. Now, cultural identities this strong were forged in the 16th century during the Reformation. A Reformation that triggered was triggered by anger, anxieties, the intellect, and the determination of one man, Martin Luther. 
Now, if you get your computer out, and many of you have it out already, and you Google Martin Luther, what are you going to get? You're going to get Martin Luther King, Jr. And that's no accident. It just shows how huge an impact this one man and the traditions he established has had on the world around him and on posterity, even among people who don't consider themselves Lutherans. And does anyone know what Martin Luther King's religion was? He was pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, but he's named after Martin Luther. Okay, before we look at Luther and his crisis of faith, I want to take time now to examine traditional Christianity that set the stage for this rebellion. Now, as outlined in the creeds of the church, Christianity is a single faith. But every age, every culture makes sense of its religion in metaphors and in terms that have meaning for its own world, its own society. And what I want to do now is to bring out some of the elements in traditional Christianity as professed in Latin Christendom from roughly the 11th century, the time of St. Anselm, to the time when Luther began the, this process of fragmentation in the early 16th century. Now, this period is called by some the High Middle Ages, but as you know, it absolutely overlaps with the period we've been calling the Renaissance. Uh, the 14th century, beginning of the Renaissance, 15th century, definitely, uh, the Renaissance and the High Middle Ages. Now, this world, I've already stressed, was a world of violence, constant feuding, fussing, and fighting, a world divided right down to the local level between friends and foes. And since in most places the state had so little power to maintain order, it was common sense for people to connect themselves to the more powerful people around them, to get them on their side so that they might someday return the favor to you if you ever needed it. So if you keep this crucial condition of life in mind, then some of the peculiarities of pre-Reformation Christianity will become more understandable. It's a fundamental tenet of Christianity then and now, uh, the doctrine of original sin. Christianity taught that our oldest relatives, Adam and Eve, had committed a sin against God, the supreme ruler of the universe, when they disobeyed his command and ate the apple from the tree of knowledge. And for that sin, the original sin, all of the human race must suffer in this life and perhaps even the torments of the damned to hell in all eternity. That this so-called original sin had been inherited by everyone who had descended from Adam and Eve made perfectly good sense to people who knew very well that in this profoundly hierarchical, unequal world, who your family was was all important in determining who's on your side and who are your enemies. And they knew very well that to do a favor for a big man meant that not only you, but your family and your friends had a claim on his favor, his goodwill, his attention. By the same token, they knew that if you got in bad with a big man, it meant you got your whole family in trouble. So, after Adam and Eve had disobeyed, had dissed God, in effect, God, like any other big lord, demanded satisfaction if he was going to wipe the slate clean 
of the original offense of Adam and Eve. If he was going to take the insult, the disrespect off the books. But alas, in a hierarchical world, not everyone is capable of giving satisfaction. Perhaps you already know this from the dueling code. If you insult an aristocrat, he can challenge you in the old days, of course, not now, to a duel. That's called demanding satisfaction. But if you're not an aristocrat yourself, you're not eligible to give satisfaction. Only someone of equal rank can do that. So what's an aristocrat going to do in real life? Oh, he's probably just going to order his lackey to horsewhip you to death or something like that. He's not going to actually do you. Only a payback of equal merit and from someone of equal merit can satisfy a debt, can give satisfaction for a transgression. That, of course, raises the question, if only an equal can make restitution, if only, if we vary the metaphor, another aristocrat is even eligible to give satisfaction for an insult, who has enough to pay the debt owed God after the original sin against him? Who is qualified to offer satisfaction to him? Only someone who is also God could offer enough. But only someone who is also man, that is related by blood and to the initial perpetrators, Adam and Eve, and is thus kin by blood to the rest of Adam and Eve's descendants, us, could take the rap for the offenders could serve as a kind of stand-in. And that brings me to Jesus Christ. For Christians, Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. He had, in fact, paid the debt by offering God satisfaction through his own death on the cross. And this explains the metaphor that is constant in both Eastern and Western Christianity, the Lamb of God, going back to the Old uh, Hebrew and Middle East times of sacrificing a lamb, the best lamb to God, as part of the ritual of atonement. This is a wonderful painting in Ghent, the Ghent altarpiece uh, by Jan van Eyck. Now, the two crucial elements of pr the pre-Reformation interpretation of salvation in the biblical narrative are, first, satisfaction, which must be equal to the offense, but must be given by someone equal to whoever is offended. Thus, if the offense is committed against God, satisfaction must be given by God. And second, kinship. The one who stands in for the real, original offender, the designated hitter, you could say, for the home team, has to be related by blood to the offender. And that means someone who is human. And that means Jesus, born of a woman, Mary. Now, in the early Middle Ages, much preaching and much medieval art was directed towards reassuring people that Jesus really was God, not just a man. The first of these two crucial elements. And Byzantine pictures of him sometimes show Jesus as king of the universe on a throne. This is You've seen this before. This is the, from the Hagia Sophia. And here we have a cathedral uh, from the Church of the Ascension in Jerusalem, built by Constantine's mother, Helena. And here is Jesus as king of the universe, as God. By the late Middle Ages, however, 
Europeans were taking the fact that Jesus was God for granted. And by the Renaissance, the main concern with the ordinary, of, of the ordinary Christian was this, with the second of these two elements. It was to assure himself that Jesus was, in fact, an actual man, someone kin to him, related to him, and someone who could take the rap for the ordinary Christian, and the Christian could be entitled to benefit. And Renaissance art, particularly in Italy, the Netherlands, and the German countries, was aimed at providing this assurance in the early Middle Ages, a simple cross was often all you would uh, see in a church, quite abstract, just a couple of sticks, really. It now becomes increasingly replaced by a crucifix, a replica of the body of Jesus hanging on a cross. Now, this was not so uh, that Christians could worship a graven image as followers of Luther would charge. It was so they could assure themselves that Jesus Christ had a body just like theirs. A, he was a human capable of feeling pain. And this concern with kinship is reflected in the countless pictures of the Holy Family. Not just Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, but Mary's mother, Anne, her cousin Elizabeth, her nephew, John the Baptist, a whole list of uncles, cousins, and aunts. Jesus had relatives. He's connected by blood to the rest of humanity. And we can see this in this picture of the Madonna and child surrounded by relatives uh, by Lucas Cranach here. It is this concern to prove that Jesus, although God, was really truly a human being that explains an aspect of Renaissance religious art that might otherwise seem quite weird to us. And that is the obsession of Renaissance artists with Jesus' genitals. Now, this is really quite new. In earlier times, Jesus is often depicted as without any genitals at all. This is a wonderful depiction, symbolic depiction of the Trinity. There's God the Father reaching down from heaven. There's the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove. And here's Jesus being baptized. Uh, it's Byzantine. Now, contrast this picture to Michelangelo's risen Christ. Christ comes out of the tomb and tosses off his shroud. Christ is now figured as the new Adam. He is beginning humanity anew without the taint of original sin, and his body is perfect, his soul is perfect. So just as Adam didn't have any clothes before uh, he uh, ate the apple, so Jesus is depicted as not needing clothes. His nudity is a sign of his perfection. And here's another. This is a statue of the risen Christ. Okay. Now, perhaps just as curious is the interest that the people who are depicted in these paintings often show in the genitals of the baby Jesus. Take the adoration of the Magi, the three wise men, the three kings. Perhaps you yourself have seen some paintings in art museums and like the ones I'm about to show you and have wondered, <laughs> what's going on here? And I could demonstrate my point with hundreds of paintings, but here are just a few. This one is pretty early. Uh, I've forgotten who painted it, but it's obviously Italian. Uh, look here. One of the three kings is kneeling down and staring very intently. Now, this one is by Andrea Mantegna. Uh, we'll see another by him later. Uh, here's the same wise man, again, looking very close. I, I'm sorry I don't have a better resolution for this one. Okay, 
What's he peering at? Well, here is another one uh, of the three wise men. This is Botticelli's version. You can see it up close. And here he is again. This, by the way, one of the wise men is, in fact, uh, the face of Cosimo de' Medici, who paid for this portrait. Here is a lovely one, uh, also by Botticelli, <clears throat> a whole big panorama of the three wise men and the shepherds and all kinds of other people. But look closely at the wise men. Here's another one. Looking very close. What's he looking at? Okay, that's Botticelli. Here's Girondio. Uh, and Mary herself is pointing, and the wise man is examining. Now, just to prove that this isn't some kind of Italian thing, uh, here's the Flemish painter, about 100 years later, Peter Bruegel, and the same thing is going on. In fact, there are countless pictures of the three wise men stooping down to examine, to make completely sure that this infant really, truly is a little boy. Now, we'll have a better idea of what's going on if we look at some of the depictions of the Madonna and child. During the medieval period, the Christ child is almost always fully clothed. But with the coming of the Renaissance, that begins to change. Here's Bramantino's Madonna and child from 1512. There's nothing accidental about the way that Mary is lifting the Christ child's dress. Nothing personal with Bramantino, who might have just happened to want to paint it that way. No, this sort of thing occurs as often in Renaissance Madonna and Child as the peering wise men do in the Renaissance Magis. Here, it's a topos, it's a recurring theme, it's almost a cliche. Here is Francesco Bonsignore. And here is Fra Filippo Lippi's mystic marriage of St. Catherine. Uh, Mary is playing peekaboo with the Christ child's dress. She's pulling it up for St. Catherine to see. Uh, Jesus himself does it in Titian's Madonna. And here we have Correggio a little bit later. Really, this goes over about a 150-year period. Now, a later generation would paint over many of these genitals, out of a kind of misplaced modesty. But there was nothing uh, prurient about these paintings. These artists are illustrating a profound theological point, that Jesus Christ was fully human, just as he was fully God, therefore qualified by blood, by kinship, to pay the debt owed by humanity through the transgressions of our first ancestors. Here are some cases where the theological point is made literally by pointing. This is Agnolo Bronzino's holy family with Jesus' aunt Elizabeth and his cousin St. John. As with many of these paintings in the 17th century, uh, Jesus uh, had a little cloth painted over top of him so no one ever knew what St. John was actually pointing at before. Here is Luca della Robbia. This is the picture, that, uh, the um, terracotta that most people saw for several centuries, but it was cleaned in 1977, and it looks like this is what Della Robbia had originally intended, this nude Jesus. Okay, uh, here is finally a German artist, Hans Baldung's holy family. This is Jesus's grandmother, Saint Anne, pointing at his genitals. And here is Sodoma's holy family, in which the Christ child himself is calling attention to his genitals. Now, prepare yourselves. Most shocking of all, 
to modern sensibilities are the pictures of the dead or newly ridden, risen Christ which depict him with an erection. Here is the most famous, a masterpiece of perspective of foreshortening to achieve three dimensions, Andrea Mantegna's Dead Christ of 1506. And here, somewhat later, is Willem Key's Pieta. Notice this is all over the geog geographical map. And here is, here is Martin von Heemskirk's uh, Man of Sorrows of 1532, and the same artist's Man of Sorrows from 1550. Okay, why are these artists doing this? This is a period in which people thought in allegorical terms. They thought in symbols. And what better symbol for the resurrection of the body of the God-man's rising from the dead, not as some ghost who could walk through doors, ceasing to be a real person, just a spirit, but somebody who has a real body, then showing him with an erection the evidence of his bodily humanity, of his vitality, that he is alive. Even many of the relics that medieval and Renaissance Christians venerated, such as the little vials with the Virgin Mary's milk, was part of this effort of reassurance. In fact, the very concentration on the Virgin Mary is part of the same evident, e emphasis on the humanity of Christ. He had a mother. Now, none of this, the childhood of John the Baptist, the vast family network of the Virgin Mary and Jesus' other relatives, the Virgin's milk, many of the saints, the Christ child's genitals, the risen Lord's erection, none of this is mentioned in the Bible. This is a kind of folklore which has grown up around a very spare biblical account. But all of it is aimed at the same theological message, bringing home in a convincing fashion, symbolically, the humanity of Christ. Now these same two notions, kinship, the collective mutual responsibility we have for those connected to us by blood or friendship, and second, satisfaction, payback, penalties, required if a debt is to be paid. These two concepts underlie many of the practices that will later give most offense to the next generation of theologians like Martin Luther, who put their stamp on the Protestant Reformation. These practices explain the veneration of saints, and by extension, their relics. The saints, they're friends of Jesus. You get on their good side, they'll ask the guy up there. They'll do something back for you. At the time the Reformation began in 1517, Luther's own ruler, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, an extremely pious man, had amassed, had bought an enormous collection of relics, 17,443 relics of all, including uh, 35 fragments of the true cross. Now, what is a relic? Can anyone... Uh, obviously, not everybody knows what a relic is. I certainly didn't know at your age what a relic is. What's a relic? Yes. Good. Old body parts of saints, fingernails. In fact, this period is a period of great veneration of uh, Jesus' circumcision. And uh, Catherine of Siena venerated the holy foreskin. 
So uh, these body parts of saints and not just the Holy Family, but the friends of the Holy Family and better, good people who have been elevated to sainthood or collected, kept in beautiful, ornate uh, encasements. They don't have to be just body parts. They could be pieces of a garment, a robe, anything connected to, associated with uh, a holy person or sight or thing. The centrality of kinship and the notion of satisfaction also helps explain especially the masses, the church services, said on behalf of the dead, and secondly, papal indulgences about which Luther would get so upset. Let's look first at the relationship between kinship and masses for the dead. By the late Middle Ages, Christians believed that the dead do not pass immediately into some transcendent heaven, nor do they simply lie there in the ground waiting for judgment day. Instead, they're moved into something called purgatory. Purgatory is a kind of penal institution for the dead, where the dead serve hard time to make them fit to pay their debt to society, you could say, say to pay their debt to God, so that they could then enter into heaven. And masses, celebrations of the Holy Communion, on behalf of the dead, are aimed at getting them some release time, time off for good behavior. Now, of course, since they're dead, it's not their own good behavior that's getting them time off. It's the good behavior of their relatives who are paying to support the priest who is saying the masses. And the demand for masses for the dead got to be so great that huge numbers of clergy, mostly monks, made their living simply by doing nothing else but celebrating mass. And they, are, they were being paid for both by panic-stricken individuals who, when faced with near death, leave money to support these priests, uh, making sure that they'll get a relatively light penalty in purgatory. But much more commonly, they're paid for by the family and friends of the deceased, very much the way that people nowadays give donations to a charity on behalf of some loved one who has passed away. It was a sign of how much people believed that the dead remained part of their own family, their own kith and kin, uh, that they give this money for masses for the dead. Now, the Feast of All Souls on November the 2nd was an extension of this idea of kinship to the whole of Christendom. One of the great festivals of the Christian year, almost up there with Christmas and Easter. And it drew its strength from the desire to release from purgatory all of those poor souls who had died without having any friends or relatives to pray for them or to have masses said for them, who were suffering the full penalty of their transgressions and the transgressions of Adam and Eve. Now, on the vigil, the night before All Souls, in the 15th century, this is uh, the day after what we would call Halloween, church bells rang all night long. Uh, in Germany, at any rate, children lit candles and put cakes on graves. Uh, the poor would go around and get fed by their more fortunate neighbors, and this is where we get Halloween's trick-or-treat. And at church the next day, Christians were reminded to pray for all the faithful departed. So here we see a conception of uh, community, everybody connected to everyone else. And if you look at these rituals the way an anthropologist would, you'd see that they exemplify the popular conception that sin is an offense in hearing in whole communities. 
not just in individuals. And it fits the conception of collective responsibility for the behavior of your family and your friends. It fits in with their belief that you have to pay for the sins of your family. In particular, the personal sins of your brothers who get you in trouble. That goes without saying. But also of your ancestors. Everybody is liable for the sins of Adam and Eve. Okay, now this collectivist understanding of sin and also grace was what ordinary people believed and probably what many ordinary parish priests believed as well. It didn't seem weird to them. It made sense to them. It fit in with what else they knew about the world. But it wasn't really the same understanding that theologians had. The scholars who devoted their lives to studying the Bible, metaphysics, theology. The theologians considered that an individual sin could only be made good through four steps. One, true repentance. Two, confession. Three, paying a penalty, either here on earth or in purgatory. And four, God's forgiveness. All of these were matters between the individual and God, though a priest could impose penalty on the penalty stage, step three, and he could convey the forgiveness that God had given. And this conveying of forgiveness is called absolution, uh, absolving you of your sins, wiping the slate clean. Now, taken together, these four steps constituted the sacrament of penance. In practice, the sacrament of penance was for a very long time governed by an unwritten tradition that sin was really a visible social matter. People expected a sinner to make good by visible social acts. And particularly in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the priest's grant of absolution, of forgiveness, was usually dependent on the penitent's coming forward and performing some act of reparation for his transgression. Usually this involved with ma- in making peace with some family with wh- whom he had been feuding or some person he had been feuding and offering restitution to that family for the harm that he had done. And a priest's greatest success in life was when he could bring about the deathbed reconciliation between two mortal enemies, uh, one forgiving the other, both forgiving each other. This would prepare a sinner at this moment of critical transition into the next world for reconciliation with God. Now, if somebody died too suddenly for this reconciliation, you can see in a large number of wills in this period, and these wills go on up really to the 18th century in Catholic countries, that the deceased often required his heirs to make reparation for his own offenses that he had committed against other people. Now, this uh, requirement of reparation would have been hard on people at any time. But it's particularly hard in this period where public order is so fragile, when there's so many feuds so bloodily taking place, and when people are always sure the other guy or the other family started it. So... These are difficulties that the instruction manuals that priests were given uh, dealt with in great detail. How were they going to bring about uh, reconciliation between, say, two men who had fought each other, maybe killed somebody in each other's family, bring about public restitution 
and reconciliation and at the same time preserve the privacy of confession where uh, the sinner had actually told the priest that he had done this murder quietly. If the person confesses his sins in public, the other family may simply take matters into their own hand and the feud will start all over again. So the church has practical reasons for gradually allowing this practice of making reparation toward the specific person or family that has been harmed to get covered vicariously, symbolically, by proxy, by the offending parties undertaking good works instead, uh, giving money to the poor, that'll be restitution for that murder, or going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, or uh, participating in special fasts, or saying a lot of extra prayers. So this is a kind of practical manner, a trend towards diminishing the role played in public, by public restitution. The old idea of penance as retribution, some sacrifice that the sinner suffers personally, uh, paying his debt to society that way. And gradually a new understanding of penance as rehabilitation. I may have killed your brother, uh, but it would cause all hell to break loose if anybody knew it. Our two families would go to war. So instead, I will try to rehabilitate myself by giving a lot to the poor and maybe going on a pilgrimage. And this, at long last, brings me to the issue of papal indulgences, a big issue in the Reformation. Now, the first thing to remember when thinking about this issue, the most burning one initially at any is that they were never intended to substitute for repentance. It was assumed that the sinner who purchased a papal indulgence had already repented, had already confessed his sins to a priest. Indulgences concerned only the third step, the penalty stage. The indulgence enabled the sinner in this absolution process to forego the act of public reparation or restitution before he got readmitted into the community of the church. And of course, if someone confesses to the priest, the priest knows that he's committed a sin and he doesn't stop committing a sin. Even if, even if confession is private, people can notice if he's taking Holy Communion or not. And if he's not taking Holy Communion, that shows he hasn't yet gone through this whole process. He hasn't yet been forgiven. So there's a sense in which no matter how private confession is, there's a, a public nature, nature to everything. Okay. Buying the indulgence enabled the sinner in the absolution process to forego reparation to a specific person before being readmitted to Holy Communion. Or if the party's already dead, the indulgence bought by a relative or a friend released him from serving a specific amount of hard time in purgatory. So indulgences were a kind of promissory note. The church itself undertook to offer its own prayers and restitution, that the sinner, prayers that the sinner would be reconciled to God and man. And that's where the name comes from. It represents indulgence rather than severity in the court of God's justice. Now, the original intention of indulgences was not a way to make money for the church. It was rather an incentive 
to get people who would otherwise have been reluctant to come forward and confess their sins and take Holy Communion once again. Uh, You follow me so far? At first, they're given, indulgences were given out to people who risked their lives or sacrificed their lives by fighting in a crusade. And later, they were extended to those who were unable, maybe too old or too sick or poor or a woman, to go on a crusade themselves, but made contributions so that someone else could fight for them. Over time, however, and certainly by 1400, indulgences were being granted for a whole lot of good works and sacrifices, including fasting and prayer. And you wouldn't actually have to do this if you had an indulgence. Some monk or nun or saint would do it for you. Sort of like in the American Revolution, paying someone else to fight for you uh, could get you your, uh, your um, what are they called, your successors, the people in your family, can get into the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, even though uh, the ancestor never actually fought. He just paid someone else to fight. Now, these indulgences included, uh, were given for things like helping to build hospitals, helping to build churches. Most of the Gothic churches were financed this way even for such secular things as building bridges. Now, how could the church actually forgive a sin for someone who hasn't actually made restitution, hasn't paid the penalty? In the late 13th century, Thomas Aquinas came up with the idea of the treasury of merit of the church. The saints, he said, had in the course of their truly excellent lives accumulated merit far in excess of what was necessary to satisfy God for restitution and forgiveness of their own sins. These acts above and beyond the call of duty were known as acts of supererogation. And the merit that they represented became part of the treasury of the church, which the church could dispose of as it wanted. Any Christian, by appealing to the saints, by praying to the saints, might draw on this treasury in order to make good his own deficits, the deficits in his own account with God. Now, as you know already, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus had given St. Peter the keys to his kingdom. And St. Peter later became Bishop of Rome, and these keys were now thought to be in the hands of his successors, the bishops of Rome, the popes. So the pope by using these keys, could open the treasury of the church as well. Now, the late medieval world found nothing strange about believing that satisfactory penance to one person could be paid for by another one, provided the relation between the two parties was sufficiently intimate. That's what your families and your friends are for. By the 15th century, however, humanist theologians are becoming increasingly impatient with symbols in general and with symbolic behavior in particular. And you know, of course, already uh, this notion of uh, the uh, the Pope as being given all of these keys, not the keys in the Bible, but certainly uh, rule over Rome itself has begun to be dismantled by humanists. Moreover, there's a growing individualistic conception, still in the beginning stages, but we see it already in the Renaissance that is whittling away the underlying idea, the idea that a satisfactory penance was something that could be appropriately performed 
for pay by someone other than the person who had committed the offense himself. This was becoming difficult for theologians really to understand. It's funny, the theologians are way out there. Ordinary people are still thinking in terms of kinfolk, clans, gangs. The idea of getting by with a little help from your friends made perfectly good sense to them. And the idea that some people, good people, saints, priests, had pull, even in heaven, that seemed absolutely common sense. So what is growing up is really a split between the theology of learned theologians, uh, their notion of what God is demanding from individuals to get right with him, and the ideas of ordinary people. And even by the period's own understanding, uh, abuses in indulgence, indulgences were creeping in. That is, even in the most broad conception of indulgences, uh, they were beginning to be seen as abusive, particularly when the church began to issue indulgences like IOUs, or paper money, in order to raise money for some of its projects. And one of these projects, it was uh, the rebuilding of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, which began in 1517. One of the great monuments of the Italian Renaissance, um, begun by Michelangelo, but Bernini uh, participated, and so forth. The friars of the church, the Dominicans, were going around preaching indulgences, that is, giving people sermons uh, to encourage them to buy indulgences. And they often ignored the distinction between repentance, this inward feeling, and penance, the outward penalty. And this brings us to Martin Luther, but why don't you stand up and stretch for a second, uh, and I will get to Luther. Okay, sorry sorry to stop so soon. Now, some of these traveling monks preaching indulgences really began to act like traveling salesmen. And they might even sing out uh, jingles like the following. I I have it on good authority that this was actually used, although it was uh, not done in English, so the rhyme isn't really very great. Once the coin in the basket rings... Another soul out of purgatory wings. So in other words, pay the money here and your uncle gets out of purgatory. This was the rhyme that the preacher Johann Tetzel recited while he traveled through Saxony selling indulgences. This was the rhyme that was reported to Martin Luther and which set him on his revolutionary course. Now the Protestant Reformation is commonly considered to have begun in 1517 where this young theology professor in Wittenberg, a sleepy little college town of about 2,500 people in Saxony, proposed 95 theses for debate 
among his fellow academics. He nailed them on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Now, these theses were arguments against indulgences, and ultimately they were arguments about the nature of salvation. And this was a matter upon which this young professor, who was himself a priest, a monk, uh, had long been preoccupied. Now, he wrote these 95 theses in Latin, so he's obviously just addressing fellow theologians. But even so, they caused an immediate sensation. And his name, as you know, was Martin Luther. Now, Luther had initially gone to law school. That's what his father wanted him to be, a lawyer, bring in some money. But in 1505, he had changed his course of study and entered a monastery after he had been almost struck by lightning in a horrific thunderstorm. In terror, he had cried out, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Uh, and he wasn't struck, and so he did become a monk. But once in the monastery, Luther found that he was tormented by fears of damnation. He later wrote that he had been terror-struck at the sight of pictures and woodcuts depicting Christ at the Last Judgment. Now, we're not talking Michelangelo here. We're talking crude uh, things like this crude cartoon. Uh, you can see up close, this is where uh, you're going in. These people are the damned. They're going into the jaws of hell right here. Now, Luther tried all the remedy, remedies that the church could offer to still his conscience and his fears. He performed penance. He took Holy Communion as often as possible. He went on pilgrimages, even to Rome. He climbed up the steps uh, of, I can't remember the church, which church it is, but a huge high set of steps on his knees. He prayed for the intercession of saints. But he found that the harder he worked at achieving holiness, the less certain he felt about his salvation. And so he sank into depression. He was tormented by nightmares. He imagined demons hovering around him, waiting for a moment of death where they could snatch his soul. And this is very much uh, the way Durer depicted in this etching from about the same time, the knight who is not just a real knight, is an individual between death and the devil. Now, Luther made lists of all his sins, and he confessed them over and over again, thinking that if he was able to remember and each one of them and do penance for each and every one, then at his death he could face God unafraid. But again and again, his conscience told him, ah, 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 you left that sin off. He might wake up in the middle of the night and remember one he'd left out. He forgot to confess. Or, ha, 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 you weren't truly sorry that time. You were just afraid of getting caught. And so Luther found himself in a catch-22 situation. Sins to be forgiven have to be confessed. To be confessed, they have to be remembered and recognized as bad. But in order to be able to recognize every sin, every time you fall short of what God wants you to be, in thought as well as deed, you have to be able to think the way God thinks. You have to also be able to desire not to fall short to desire what God himself desires. But if the sinner were able to think as God thought or to desire what God desired, he wouldn't be a sinner at all, would he? So Luther confronted the implications of what the church termed original sin. Above and beyond any individual act of wrongdoing, the human being's very will since the fall of Adam and Eve had been corrupted. 
As St. Augustine, the patron saint of Luther's monastic order, once put it, the good that I could do, I would not. The good that I would do, I wanted to do, I could not. So what we have here is a situation like the alcoholic who is still in denial. The sinner is someone who, when he really wants to give up his habit, finds he can't. While on those days when he feels that he really could give up his habit, he discovers that at some deep level, he doesn't entirely, with his whole heart, really want to. At least not yet. St. Augustine's satirical prayer was, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Luther suffered this emotional turmoil for about 10 years. Now, his superior in his order, a wise man, suggested that he give a lecture course on St. Paul's epistles. That might straighten him out. And he did this uh, in 1513. This is a man who was not, uh, didn't have the modern remedy of meds. So when he had his mood swings, they were big ones. Now, he was about 30 years old at this time. This is the age that many graduate students begin teaching full-time. And during the process of preparing for this course, this lecture course, Luther gradually came to a different understanding of the human predicament, an understanding that goes by the phrase, the slogan, justification by faith, which is a quote from uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Solo fides, we are justified by faith alone. Now, the term justification is confusing for us moderns to understand. At least it was confusing until the computer came along. It doesn't mean have a good excuse, a justification for doing something. You should think of justification as analogous to what your word program does when it justifies your margin. It takes these crooked, squiggly sentences and makes them right so that they all line up, they're made square, they are got into line. And what Luther meant by justification was making himself right with God, bringing himself in line with God. But, he said, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right. The human heart is too vicious to save itself. In some deep sense, the human heart doesn't even want to save itself any more than the addict in some deep way really wants to give up his habit. Forgiveness, therefore, is a gift, an act of grace on the part of God. It can't be won by trying to bribe God by doing this or that good work. The sinner must not trust in his own penances, must not trust in personal morality. All he can do is have faith in God's mercy to believe that God, through his grace, has redeemed him. This is very close uh, to the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. You trust in a higher power. It's everything without the 12 steps. Now, righteousness is passive. It's being open to God. It's not something you can do. Righteousness, of course, comes from being right. Faith is the channel through which the grace of the Savior can flow down to the troubled soul. And peace of mind does not depend upon any puny efforts that sinners can make to be good, but comes from sharing in Christ's own righteousness. And here is how Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which you heard when you were coming in, puts it. If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. 
were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Now, these views are not really very new. Luther himself would have been the first to admit that. An important current of theology, especially that of St. Augustine, had a similar understanding of the relationship between salvation and grace right from the beginning. But the traditional church, the pre-Reformation church, was a big tent. And those theologians who were more influenced by Aristotle, men like Thomas Aquinas, had always insisted that having free will was an essential part of what it meant to be a human being. Now, they admitted that the human will had been damaged by original sin, but it hadn't been entirely corrupted. The human being could cooperate with God in his work of salvation. God's grace, yes, it's essential to redemption. It's necessary to have faith in it. But human effort was essential as well, what is known as good works. Now, within the little University of Wittenberg, Luther became extraordinarily popular among professors. His lectures on Paul's epistles drew in students. They outshone all the other lecturers who would only offer uh, Thomas Aquinas. Luther was young. He was dynamic. He was charismatic. And he was uh, very funny. His lectures were laced with mordant sarcasm. But everybody knew he was utterly serious. Now, what kind of personality did Luther have? In later years, he would veer widely between, wildly between caution and hysteria, between a kind of attractive detachment and even irony about himself and a kind of megalomania in which he compared his travails to those of Christ. You might say megalomania is a necessary trait if you're going to insist that your own interpretation of doctrine uh, is the only one right and those people the entire church with the wrong interpretation are heretics. This is an opinion that could well be followed by being burnt at the stake. Now, his attack on indulgences sprang straight from his understanding of justification by faith. Moreover, he saw in the sale of indulgences a symptom of a whole habit of mind of his generation that treated God as someone to be bribed by good works. But his attacks on indulgences, these 95 theses, infuriated the Dominican monks who had been given the job of selling indulgences in Saxony, the state where Luther lived. They reported him to their superiors, then to Rome, and for four years, charges of heresy were pending against Luther. Throughout these years, emissaries were going back and forth from Rome to Luther, interviewing him, interrogating him, even conjoling him, but to no avail. Now, some historians have thought that if only the Vatican had taken a more conciliatory line, they might have kept him on the team. Uh, but he was not a team player. Others have said, well, if they'd taken a more persecutory line, they could have silenced him by force. But instead, Vatican officials angered Luther without crushing him. And that is Machiavelli's recipe for certain failure. In the meantime, Luther's students took up uh, the cause, now this is what students mostly spent their time doing, drinking and carousing. Uh, but they stole 800 copies of uh, Tetzel's Defense of Intelligences. I guess I don't have the picture of that this time. And unknown to the ruler of Saxony or to the university authorities or to Luther himself, they burnt these indulgences in a huge bonfire, beginning a tradition of liberal students in Germany 
against conservative writers that they don't like, which continues through the centuries and ends, of course, with Nazi students doing it to liberal and Jewish writers in the 20th century. Soon, Tetzel could no longer walk the streets of Saxony for fear of violence against him. Luther was finally excommunicated, and he responded with a defiant sermon. And then he would publish pamphlets against his opponents. And each time he responded, he got more radical. There was a regular pamphlet war. He went from denying that indulgences did any good to denying that any good works, pilgrimages, fasts, saints, masses, did any good. He went from denying the pope any authority as head of the church to arguing that even the church as a whole could err in doctrine. This is what he meant by sola scripture, sola scripta. Only what can be proved through scripture should be believed. Now, Luther was no dope. He was perfectly well aware that different people can look at a line of scripture and interpret it, quite honestly, differently. So how do you know whose interpretation is right? His first response, I have to say, is typical of a professor. He said, well, uh, the faculty of the university should decide. But he ended up denying any authority but that of his own conscience. And based on his own interpretation of scripture, he eventually claimed that there was no biblical support for purgatory, that monasteries should be shut down, they're just there uh, to say masses for the dead, and since there's no purgatory, we don't need any masses for the dead. He said that clergy were no different from other men, so they couldn't give you absolution for your sin. Moreover, all believers are equal, equally priests by virtue of being believers, the priesthood of all believers. There were no such things as saints, he said, who could help you out. God alone can save you. So there's no point in collecting all those relics. Now, it's no wonder that almost immediately his followers began to riot all over the countryside and commit iconoclasm, that is, go into the churches, break the statues, uh, break the stained glass windows, smash the altarpieces, melt down the reliquaries. And these developments changed the very, this is a reliquary, by the way, this has got somebody's fingernail in it somewhere, uh, changed the very look of life in Europe. Here is a uh, Dutch Protestant church. What do you not see there? No cross, no altar, no statues. Here's a Calvinist church in Lyon, France, also. No cross, no statues, no nothing. What is central to both of these? The pulpit. So the sacrifice of the mass, the sacrament, the altar, is replaced in the center of the church by preaching the word by the pulpit. Contrast this to Catholic churches. Uh, many Catholic churches have no pulpit at all. Here we are in Croatia. Here's Prague. Here's, there is a pulpit, but note, that's not the altar. It's very much on the side. And here we can go from north to south, Lithuania to Spain, pulpit on the side. The Catholic world remained a world filled with saints, with intermediary be beings. You can see this in Baroque church ceilings. This is one by Tiepolo. Uh, you can see it in the very layout of the church themselves. And finally, priests and monks, since they were no different from other men, in Protestant churches, they could marry, and that's what Luther did. He practiced what he preached. He married a nun, uh, Catherine von Bora. 
Okay, tomorrow, uh, Thursday, we will talk about the spread of the Reformation, its institutionalization.